I told Josh, actually, when he was, before he was going to read the text, I said, look, there's a lot of funky names in there. Um, so you can say there was a bunch of guys and the Levites, or you can, you can attempt to read all the names. And he did it really well. I mean, that's the gifting of one who works in, with the children so frequently, you know. He's got to know how to pronounce all these crazy names. Um, Well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, we all know this phrase, right, from the Declaration of Independence. It describes our inalienable rights. And I think for some of us in here this morning, it also describes the quest of our hearts, especially this third part, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, what is happiness? I mean, if if we happen to stumble into happiness, how on earth do we get to keep it? It seems like this is something we all long for, but it falls falls through our fingers. Well, I wanted to show us a clip this morning from AMC's popular TV show, Mad Men. And there's, there's one gentleman, Don Draper. He's this advertising guru in the 1960s. And he taps into this insatiable desire for happiness as a tool to try to land this deal. So let's watch together as he strategically tries to tap into all of our longings for happiness. I want to talk about your business. What about it? See, I've been looking at what you're doing, and I think you're in desperate need of change. And you're just the guy to do it. I am. We're at 50% market share in almost everything we make. Because you have a big line of diverse and charismatic products, and you keep making more. Zip tape, styrofoam, Ravana. And why do you do that? Because even though success is a reality, its effects are temporary. You get hungry even though you've just eaten. At the old firm, we had London Fog raincoats. We had a year where we sold 81% of the raincoats in the United States. Name another raincoat. But we didn't stop working for them because 81% isn't enough. But it doesn't change the fact that we're happy with our agency. Are you? You're happy with 50%. You're on top and you don't have enough. You're happy because you're successful for now. But what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. I won't settle for 50% of anything. I want 100%. You're happy with your agency? You're not happy with anything. You don't want most of it. You want all of it. And I won't stop until you get all of it. Thank you for your time. Did you get it? Did you catch it? What is happiness? Happiness is the moment before you realize you need more happiness. I mean, how many of us in here feel that way? I, I mean, we feel like our lives are in transit. We're either on our way driving to work, or we're waiting in line at the grocery, or we're planning to pay off our debt, or we're looking for our future spouse, or you name it. We're all on a journey for the next something or someone who will finally make us happy. And we've all felt that same experience, too, where we finally grab what we thought we wanted And it turns into vapor. It's a mirage. And we long for that next thing that might be different. If we only had more. If we just had this one thing, instead we would finally be happy. I think what's so frustrating about this whole journey for happiness um, is is this, this infrequent discontentment with the present. Everything that we're involved in in today is unenjoyable because we're constantly looking forward to what we long for in the future. So, for example, you can't enjoy your classes while you're working towards your degree because all you're excited about is the future job. Once you get the job, you can never take delight in your work because you're only looking forward to that promotion. 
You can never revel once you finally do get the promotion because you're looking forward to retirement and then once you get retirement, you long for those days of your youth. It's this endless cycle. You, you never get exactly what, what you hoped for and, and you continue to tell yourself this lie that finally, if I just got this one thing, finally, I'll be happy. Well, what if, what if we've been looking in the wrong place our whole lives? What if, what if we don't have to live our lives in the gap between momentary happiness and another momentary happiness? What if there's something that gives us ambition today and contentment for, or contentment today and ambition for tomorrow? If you're tired of living in the gap, like I feel still sometimes uh, tired of living in the gap, between one happy moment and another, we have to change our lives drastically. Something intense has to happen. And rather than having a good times renewal, of happiness, we need a God-timed revival of joy, because only joy changes everything. Now, there are some overlaps between happiness and joy, right? There, there are these, these circles that tend to have a, a shade that, that correlates to one and the other. But joy has stability. It's long-term. It's internal, whereas happiness is an emotional state that definitely sways depending on our outside circumstances. This morning, when we turn to our book of Nehemiah, we see God's story through Nehemiah takes a beautiful twist. You see, we've seen God's people brought back and placed in God's place, but God isn't done with them yet. He has a surprising work of joy that he's going to do in their hearts that's going to change everything. So I ask us this morning, if our lives really can only change because of a revival of joy, there are three questions, three critical questions we all need answered. First, in a world where joy is kind of a rarity, we need to ask, where can we find joy? Where can we find joy? Secondly, what on earth do we do with joy once we find it? And then thirdly, what does joy do to us once it finds us? So where do we find joy? What do we do with it once we find it? And what does it do to us once it finds us? First, I'd like to just spend a moment in prayer together. Our Father, we come before you uh, this morning, um, humbled by the word that was proclaimed as it was read. We hear you working and we see you working in the lives of those around us. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak through your word. That what, I, what I say, Lord, I pray, whatever is truth would stick and whatever is nonsense would slide by the wayside. Um, may your name be glorified and may your Holy Spirit be working in each one of our hearts this morning for your glory and your glory alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, we have some free copies on the info table there with a helpful little marker on Nehemiah, so it's easy to find Nehemiah if you're lost in the quandary there uh, of, of Scripture. And in chapter 6 in Nehemiah, in chapter 6, verse 15, we see the walls finished. And all the surrounding nations, they're astonished at what has happened because it happened in 52 days. This rag, ragamuffin crew, not made up of stonemasons or gold, uh, goldsmiths but, or, or uh, people who mess with gold, gold metallurgy, um, but it's, it's these ragamuffin groups of men, women, and children working together on different sections of the wall. And in chapter 7, after the wall is completed, 
all these exiles begin to come back and repopulate Jerusalem. So the city's got life in it that it hasn't seen for decades. And when we get to chapter 8, everyone is at the wall. Everyone's gathered together. All these Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem are gathered together, and surrounding them is the work of their hands, the wall. And who couldn't be happier? You see your work well done and finished surrounding you. And they get together early in the morning at what is the water gate. The water gate. And not historic, our historic water gate. But the water gate at Jerusalem. It's there along the east side of the wall. And as they get there early in the morning, you can see the sunrise over the hills of Jerusalem coming and beaming through the water gate. It's gorgeous. I've been there before. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And with the sunrise shining through, there's new possibilities on the horizon. You see, they didn't gather together just by happenstance. It wasn't like, hey, Jedediah, what are you doing here? Or Judy, what a surprise. No, this was planned. <laughs> this, this was the Jewish New Year's Day. They gathered together on the seventh month, the first day of the seventh month. This is New Year. This is the end of harvest. And as they're gathering together, they've got a lot to celebrate, don't they? I mean, they're surrounded by the work of their hands, excited because family and friends, lost cousins are back together. The exiles have returned. And what do they do? They ask Ezra, and if you're thinking, you're, if you're thinking it's the guy from who, who another book of the Bible is written after, you're right, it's that guy. Ezra, the priest of the town, he gathers the people together and they say, why don't you grab God's word? It's a New Year's celebration. Grab the, the law of Moses. I mean, how many, of New, how many New Year's celebrations have you been to where people are bumping, uh, popping open the bubbly and they're like, grab the Bible? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, if ever. I don't think I've ever been to one. And when we get to verses 2 through 5, we see this, this painting of the picture of a New Year's parade. You know, Ezra, he grabs the scroll. He climbs up this wooden platform that had been prepared for this very moment. And he looks out at the people before him, and who does he see? He sees men, women, and children. The text says, all who could understand what they heard were there. And not much has changed with God's people still today, has it? I mean, God is consistently bringing people together from all walks of life, all stages of life, to gather around his book, what he's revealed, it about, revealed about himself and spoken into his community. Some of you are younger some of you are older, some are wealthier, some are meager of means. But we come together as a people of God saying with one voice, Speak, O Lord. Right? Well, Ezra, he begins to bellow out the words of Scripture. And he reads on and on and on for a whole half a day. I mean, the text says, from morning to midday. And two things astound me about this part of the story. First, they're standing this whole time. So we can connect with our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters who stand during their whole gathering as a community of faith. But it also says the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were hungry for the word of God. They had fresh ears and eager ears to know what God was going to tell this newly formed and regathered community. But they don't just stop there. They don't just stop at listening to the word read. We don't just stop after Josh reads the scripture for us. But they want to know how this actually impacts their lives. And so we see this list of names of Levites who are going around, right? 
around to the different families and the groups, showing and explaining how the text, the law of Moses, actually impacts their lives. Now, as returning exiles in a, in a renewed state of Jerusalem. And we do the same today when we gather together. You see, God's word, it's still speaking, us, speaking to us today. It's, it's still the ultimate voice that we all say, Amen, Amen. Meaning, it is reliable, it is true. And we raise our hands and surrender to what God has for us. And everything else in our lives bows to its face before the authority of God's word. This is what we see playing out. And after all this teaching, what do we find the people doing? They weep. Now, Gabe, this is a message on joy. We're talking about weeping. When are we getting there? Hold on. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Imagine Israel. Um, they're on this great high. The walls surround them. They're hanging out with family and friends that they haven't seen either for decades, seeing how family ties connect. And then they realize how vulnerable their community is. They realize how fragile their new walls are. I mean, they placed all this hope in this new construction projects. You see, Israel had been in this place before. Others had stood where they now stand. The walls then were much thicker, much, much more excellently made, and the community was much stronger and bigger. And so when they look at the walls now, instead of happiness and security, they worry and they have dread as to what's next for them as a people. We've all had those moments where what we thought was going to bring us happiness, what we thought was going to bring us security, lets us down. And we feel this disappointment because... Because we never thought it would leave us so empty. We never thought that the wind would be knocked out of our sails and we would feel motionless and empty all over again. And so they begin to weep because of how they've disobeyed God's law throughout even their history as a people and even currently. And they realize how fragile their walls and how vulnerable their community. Because without God, none of that will stand. So the people's heart, it's not only attentive to what's being said, but it's broken. If they're to have security, peace, and happiness, it has to come from something bigger than the walls that surround them, stronger than the community that they're a part of. So look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, so they say this again, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Here's where we find the source of joy. I mean, this is a common phrase. I'm sure you've heard it multiple times throughout your life. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The leaders, they look out at the people, and they see them broken. And they were, as, as they're responding to God's word, and what do they say? Stop it. Stop weeping. Cut it out. <laughs> yeah, you've gone and you've looked for happiness in other areas, but now see that you don't have to be grieved. You don't have to worry anymore. You've found real security that brings rest. Something stronger than these walls. You've found the source of joy, not a temporary happiness. Where is it, they say? It's not in something we do. It's not in something that we are. But it's in someone we know. You see, God's basic character is joy. What do we mean by that? 
Well, there are times where God is sorrowful. There are times when God is angry, but it's in response to a broken creation. Ultimately, God's heart is a joyful heart. It's out of joy that he created the world. It wasn't like he was punching a time clock as he's going each day, and then there were uh, the stars or the moon and, and the, the, the bigger light and the lesser light. Okay, five o'clock, I'm out. You know, he, it was out of joy that he created his good world. It was out of joy that he created humanity. And, and it's out of joy that God created you and I. God's joy is his eternal destiny. There are times when he is broken by sin and he feels sorrow. But he's headed to a place of ultimate joy when all wrongs will be made right once again in the new creation. Then joy will reign supreme when God's kingdom is united with earth. You see, the difficult with the, about the whole deal is that in order to have joy, you don't go looking for joy. Seems a little strange. But it's true. You don't go looking for joy if you want joy. You have to pursue where it lives. You could chase down a million different paths of temporary happiness, and they'll end in a dead end, and they'll point to something more grandiose. Um, but but if, if we truly want joy, we have to pursue God. If we want joy, we have to pursue God. God has never been stingy with his joy. He's not keeping it in a bucket and waiting for the, the secret passcode. But, but joy cannot survive outside of his orbit. It's, for example, if you tried to take a flower and you went and tried to plant it on the moon, it will not survive. The environment is dry. It's dead. It was never meant to sustain life, as far as we know. And so you go and try to plant a flower and it'll die instantly. It was designed to flourish within the earth and the unique nutrients and characteristics of our world so that it might flourish. The same is true of joy in God. Outside of the relationship with God, it cannot survive. True joy requires all that God is to survive. And if you want joy, you have to pursue God. Now, there is a danger in all of this, though, too. You know, even when we say this. Pursue God if you want joy. If you pursue God as a means to your end, which is joy, then you won't have joy either. Do you get what I'm saying? So you, if, if, if God is merely the means to a different end, which is joy, then you will not have joy. You aren't really looking for God at that point. You're looking for joy, and God's just a way to get it. It becomes a commodity. I think a good example is kind of like... Um, Gold digger relationships, right? Whether it's a man or a woman, it happens with both sexes. Um, they marry someone who has extreme wealth, and it's never about the relationship. It's about a transaction. You marry that person to get something from them, right? Not to love them and to be with them. And many of these relationships, they end in utter failure. They're very disastrous. They're self-destructive, and they're very biting many times. They're all about a transaction rather than a relationship. And God, he must be your end if your joy is to never have an end. So do you want joy? I don't think anybody in here would say they don't want joy. The question is, do you want more of it? And God wants to give it. He's generous with his joy. He's got tons of this stuff. And he's willing to lavish it upon those who are willing to be with him. And he's shown us about how to go about getting it. Um, so we spend time with the one who radiates joy 
and he's given us guidance on where to find him. So two, two particular spaces, okay? First, he invites us to, to meet him in his word. The people of God, what are they doing for half a day here? They're listening to the word of God read, the word of God taught in their life. This isn't, hey, I was drinking a cup of coffee and boom, it just happened. No, they put themselves in a place where they're hearing the word of God preached to them. They're hearing the word of God read. And this is a key element. If we long to know who God is, we've got to go to his word. It's how he's revealed himself. Listening to the scripture being read and digging deeper as a community into who God is and what he has for us. It's there that we get a greater perspective on what God gives and how he gives it. Secondly, if there's anything we've learned from the book of Nehemiah, I mean anything, is that Nehemiah is a guy of prayer, right? And throughout this whole book, this whole record of what God is doing in Nehemiah, we see that prayer is a key component to knowing God and being known by God and interacting in our broken world. And so it's in prayer that we're able to stand up against opposition because God there, he, he, he intercedes for us. It's in prayer where we lay down those burdens that are weighing us down, that are stealing our joy, We lay them down before the throne room of grace before our Heavenly Father. It's in prayer that we're able to remember where the good things in life come from, right? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Prayer, it's a step of dependence and submission that God is the source of our joy. So the Word of God, we place ourselves by listening to the Word of God read, Word of God taught, and then we interact with God through prayer. These two key elements help us understand and know God better and be in his presence. And we do that all in community on a regular basis, as we see here in our text this morning. So where do we find joy? You know, this is like the Sunday school answer. In God, you know. It's pretty pretty self-explanatory, but many times that's not where we go looking for it, is it? It's some of the easiest answers that the hardest own. Well, if we, if we know where to find joy and that it's in God, what do we do with joy once we find it? What do we do with joy once we find it? Well, we see that the people of God, they celebrate. And this is a fun part of the story. It's, you know, there's not too many times that the pastor gets to preach on celebration. And if you look at verses 11 and 12, let's read those together. So the Levites, so the teachers of the law, those who are working through the sacrificial system, and all the people are calmed, all the people saying, Be quiet! For this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared to them. There's a place for weeping, and we'll see that here later. But once they realize that joy isn't ultimately in their finished products, but it's, but it's in the one who's organized these products, they party. They party. And look at, the, look at the spread at this party. I mean, this isn't some, some little meager deal. Um, we would expect something nasty or bland because it's a religious festival, right? Like some, some beets and cabbage. But instead, they took, they took the choicest parts. If you like beets and cabbage, God bless you. But that's, for me, that's like some of my least favorite. Um, but instead, they took the choice parts of the meat, the fat, <laughs> The fat, which has all the sweetest flavors, which my wife never eats the fat, and sometimes I just eat fat straight up, which sounds kind of disgusting, but it's so flavorful. It's got all the sweetness in it, you know? It's some of the most unhealthy, but it's some of the most pleasurable parts of the meat. 
And many times in the sacrifices, the people of God were not allowed to eat the fat and the meat. It was usually burnt as a burnt offering before God. So the fact that they get to eat what is usually set apart for God is a great example of celebration here. But they don't just stop at eating some fatty portions of meat, which make us all jolly. They also take the nicest and sweetest wine. I mean, this is the time to open that 1980, you know, Merlot. I know Merlot is not like the biggest, you know, fanfare wine. You know, or, or Malbec or something along those lines. This, they're, they're opening like the best wine, the best drinks, the best resources that they have in their compartments. It's time to bust it open. It's time to celebrate. And just so we, we can be clear on how God views celebration, it's not just the rich and famous. It's not just those who have the resources here that get to celebrate. What does God say through the Levites and through Nehemiah and through Ezra? Also for those who don't have anything or maybe forgot to prepare, share it. This is for the whole community. This is a just celebration. It's not just celebrating, it's a just celebration. And it's an opportunity for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, to celebrate who God is and the new year they're ushering into and all of his gifts that he's given them. Once you find joy, it's time to celebrate. And many of us here aren't that good at parties. Um, This has led some of our best thinkers actually to call for a discipline of celebration. Some of you may have heard this language before. Many times when we think of disciplines, we think of the discipline of fasting or the discipline of solitude. It's abstaining from something or stopping from doing something. Well, a discipline of celebration is abstaining from weeping and choosing to rejoice and spend some extra cash to really enjoy God's good world. You know, God's, that's what God's telling his people to do here. Now, normally, it's, it's not easy for the church to be a place of celebration. We've sometimes been called fuddy-duddies or whatever. We tend to be considered uptight for various reasons. But the people of Israel, um, they're gathered to, together on a holy day. This is a day that's set apart as holy, which is where we get our language of holiday, Right? This isn't just popped out of nowhere. It's a holy day. And in Scripture, these days are set apart for Israel to enjoy God's good world and extravagance. I mean, they they slay the fat and calf. They're eating the fat. They're drinking the nicest wine. Everybody gets to party. And so for God here, not celebrating is actually tantamount to disobedience. That's Don't be a party pooper, you know, or or that's disobedience. That takes on a whole new uh, twist there. Which makes me think we, get, we, get to, we need to start throwing some better parties as Christians, right? We need to practice this discipline of celebration. Some of you are really good at it. Some of us aren't. And, and what I think is what's holding us back, one of the biggest obstacles as I think about who we are and the culture that we live in, the biggest obstacle is busyness and stress. That's what I think. Not just maybe miser, miserliness, maybe that's more me. But, but stress and busyness. One study, check this out, one study found that commuters experience greater levels of stress than fighter pilots and riot police. Oh, so if you're commuting, hello, you know, don't get in my way. That's what we're facing. High stress, little to no margin, overextended relationally, and probably little to less sleep than we probably should be getting. So when opportunities come to celebrate, one of two responses come. We're either too tired right? Oh, well, they've got that going on. I'm exhausted. 
I just, I'm not going to go. Or we just don't have the time to stop and party and celebrate. One writer has said this. He says, um, oh, I meant to show this. I mean, this, this is a great picture. Look at that guy. He's got more hands, and he still feels way too busy. What in the world? Um, one writer has said, busyness is like sin. Kill it, or it will be killing you. Most of us fall into a predictable pattern. This is what he says. We start to get overwhelmed by one or two big projects. Then we feel crushed by the daily grind. Then we despair of ever feeling at peace again and swear that something has to change. Then two weeks later, life is more bearable. And we forget about our oath until the cycle starts all over again. What we don't realize is that all the while, we've been a joyless wretch, snapping like a turtle, and as personally engaging as a cat. <laughs> oh. Well, if you like cats, I think he's right on, because I don't like cats. So it's personally, as personally engaging as a cat. Now, and I know personally for me, um, the discipline of celebration is difficult. You can ask Allie, my wife. Um, she keeps me accountable in a very good way. So this is what we found to be really helpful. And fighting for joy in your lives. This is a real practical step, okay? Set one day apart a week as an opportunity to enjoy life. You think God would have said something about this, right? Um, <clears throat> he's designed us to need a day where we actually rest, where we actually enjoy his good world. He didn't make us here to be slaves and to drudge through life. He created us to be in the garden. He created us to enjoy life. He created us to enjoy his good world and to give him glory by enjoying it. So celebrate the good gifts he's given you. Stop working yourselves to death, right? But learn to celebrate God's joy. I like, there's a gentleman, Dr. James Houston. He helped start Regent College. He said, for Christians who live closely with God, life is like a festival. Man. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean um, the Renaissance Festival. If you, don't, if you don't dig that, that may not be your deal. If it is, then it is like the Renaissance Festival. But it's a time of celebration, a time of great joy. And is that true for you? Is that, I mean, do you have these spaces in your life? I know for me, it wasn't, it, when I wasn't taking this day off, um, I became numb to joy. I mean, I'm, I think when I first started meeting the downtown campus, I didn't take a day off for six months. And it wasn't because of anybody else putting pressures on me. It's just because I'm ornery and I'm a workaholic. And, uh, and I'm a perfectionistic person. <laughs> but when I didn't take a day off, became numb to joy. My relationships came, became a little clunky. Um, my work didn't have any joy. And I was only trying to survive and never enjoying where God had placed me, the people he'd brought into my life. I became very emotionally numb, like a robot, um, like a machine. And in order to break that cycle, it takes discipline. It takes discipline to really do that well. Um, what, what does this discipline look like? It looks like maybe just not checking your email once a week. If, you, if you're a person where email can just destroy your day because you realize you have a project that's going to be due or whatever, just don't check your email for a day and enjoy the good world that you've been placed in, the good gifts you've been given. Maybe it's not checking your phone every five minutes on your day off. Maybe, maybe for me, <laughs> it's sitting with my wife a little bit longer just to be Maybe for me, it's just reading a book, not because it's helping me with the upcoming sermon, <laughs> but it's because it's stirring imagination for the very sake of enjoying a good story. 
Maybe for you, it's getting together with friends just because they're friends and enjoying a good meal together. Enjoying what we've been designed for in the midst of a very busy and hectic life. Practicing discipline, the discipline of celebration in a whole day and in periods throughout the week. So I ask you this morning, are you taking time to celebrate individually? Are you taking time to celebrate as a family? Are we taking enough times to celebrate as a community? I mean, this is something we need to be sharpening one another as a community of faith who lives downtown, works downtown, comes and serves downtown. How are we doing this as a church? Are we celebrating well? Well, where do we find joy? We find it in God. What do we do when we find it? We celebrate. We have opportunities to enjoy life. And what does joy do to you once it finds you? Well, three things. Three things. What do we think of when the, the joy of the Lord is our strength? What comes to your mind when you think of the word strength? Maybe the synonyms of might or muscle or intensity. But the word for strength here in Hebrew actually carries a different nuance. It's not the forward fighting style of might, but it has the language of refuge. It's the language of protection, of safety, of security. It's a place to hide, which takes this whole phrase to a new meaning, doesn't it? It's not something that's fighting for your battles out there, but it's protecting you. It's guarding you like a mother hen covers her wings over her chicks. Though your job may be hard, maybe your job's boring. Maybe your job's a little shaky right now. The joy of the Lord ensures us and comforts and protects you knowing that he's in control. He's going to care for your needs. He's looking into the situation. Maybe, maybe you've been looking for this future spouse for years. Maybe you're curious about what God has for you relationally. But the joy of the Lord, it protects our insecurities It protects us and reminds us that we were designed beautiful. We are designed as beautiful creatures, lovable, even though we may feel unlovable because of rejection. Whatever the storm of life that comes your way, the joy of the Lord promises refuge and protection. We may not always be smiles. We may not always have the greatest of laughs. But we'll always have hope that is founded in the character of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and it guards our hearts. Now, the strange thing about joy, which is different from happiness, happiness always pursues comfort, right? Happiness is always pursuing a stable environment such that the outside circumstances impact us with joy and happiness. But joy, joy sometimes makes us weep. Joy sometimes causes us to weep. You see, after all this celebration and feasting, when you get to chapter 9, Israel enters a period of repentance and fasting. Look, if you have your Bibles open to chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. That's that really scratchy stuff that doesn't feel very good. And with earth on their heads, (laughs) which just starts to get humorous as you start thinking about this picture. And the Israelites, they separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins, the iniquities of their fathers. How is joy mixed up in all of that, right? When we think of joy, how is, it, how is it mixed up in here? Well, when joy finds you, it grips your heart. 
it grips your heart. When you've tasted life as you were designed to live because you've practiced this discipline of celebration, you see life as it was designed to live and you're, you're enjoying the good gifts of God's good world, you see the emptiness of sin. You see sin in a whole new light. You see it in God's perspective. You see, once we experience life as it was designed to be, God says, this is what I want to give you. This is what I have for you. And you begin to look at sin with a whole, a whole different shade, a slanted eye, a curiosity that wants you to stay away rather than enter in. Once you've tapped into the sweetness of God's joy, you begin to see that the pain and the destruction that sin can bring. You see how ugly disobedience to God's word is because it leads you away from the source of your joy. And this is why repentance becomes so intense for people who are truly joy-filled. Because it becomes so heartfelt. Because you want more lasting joy. You want more of God. You want more of life. And you realize what you've been doing, what you've been involved in, has only been stealing that from you. And so joy says, oh, this is terrible. I see the emptiness of it now. I want more of you, God. I want more of who you have and what you have for me. And so it breaks our hearts, but in the midst of it, we still have joy. This is kind of oxymoron style of understanding what's going on here. When joy finds you, it grips your heart. But we know from Scripture that those who sow in tears, what? Reap with joy. Reap in joy. But joy doesn't just guard our hearts and grip our hearts. It guides our hearts. It guides our hearts. I mean, joy has a way of expanding our lives. Joy, like we said, changes everything. And what I mean is that the flow of our focus changes. When we're broken in our own uh, sadness and when we choose to push away from the source of our joy, our lives flow inward, don't they? We become very myopic in our viewpoint, the me and mine universe, and we have to continue to pull more and more into the me and mine universe to the point that we become a gaping hole for anyone who's around us. You become life-taking. But once we've experienced the joy that flows from God, our life takes a new trajectory. Rather than sucking it all in, we begin to overflow. Life and goodness actually flows out of us because we are one with God through Jesus Christ. This overflowing joy. And the people of Israel, they become a generous people in our story. Now, mind you, think about where we are in the narrative here of Nehemiah. Just earlier, it only took him 52 days to build the wall, right? So just earlier, there was this huge famine that hit the land. It was so bad, and the taxes were so intense that there were a series of injustice. People were selling each other into slavery because of this intense famine and brokenness in the community. So it's not like they're rolling in the dough here and they've got tons of cash. But instead, what we see is the same people, when they're encountered by the revival of joy in the Lord, they become outlandishly generous. Look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. In each one of these verses, there's a refrain, the house of God, the house of God. They're bringing things into the house of God, or they're serving in the house of God. They're giving tithes, tithes for the house of God, or they're working for the house of, the God, house of God, with the last phrase being in chapter 10, we will not neglect the house of our God. Why? 
They had found the source of their joy. God himself, and he had found them. And they overflowed with generosity towards the purposes of God in their world through his institution. It was through the temple that the poor were cared for. It was through the temple that the community was cared for. It was through the temple that the community was continually pointed to the joy that flows from God. It was this institution which they bring in their generous gifts that they cared for their community and continued to breed greater and greater joy. You know, as we think about our own role and as we come to a text that's in the Old Testament, part of the Older Covenant, um, the Older Covenant, we, and we come from this side of the cross and this side of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit now dwelling within us rather than a temple, we ask, okay, what does that look like for us? How do we see joy evidenced in our generosity? Well, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he correlates this same phrase, house of God, with the church, when he says in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, you may know how one ought to behave in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul, he's steeped in Old Testament language. This isn't an accident that he uses this language. And when the people of God today find themselves gripped with joy, yeah, we're generous in our celebration so that the whole community can join in. But it also should guide our hearts towards generosity to the bride of Christ, the church. Now, there's something we say every week um, here. We say at Christ Community, we don't pass an offering plate. Um, But we do believe that giving is a vital part of our worship, right? What's tough is that when some of you hear me even talking about this right now, your minds instantly go to, aha, here's the pastor. He's talking about what he can get from me. But that's not our purpose this morning. It's really what we want for you, not from you. So downtown, friends, I'm going to say give to your church. It's kind of bold. It's kind of like, oh, no, the pastor talked about giving. Of course, he's building into stereotypes. But I have to, I have to go where God's word goes on this one. Um, it's not easy and comfortable for a pastor to say these things, but I think it's necessary if we truly believe in the mission of the church. And here, give, give to the church for three reasons. One, because God tells you to. Um, that's a, you know, that's kind of square one. But then two, just imagine, just imagine what God could do for our world with our collaborative resources in terms of evangelism, in terms of church planting, in terms of, in terms of caring for the poor in our city, in terms of community outreach, fighting oppression. I mean, just imagine. And if you want to look at our budget, please look at our budget. You'll find aspects of all of these pieces at which your tithes and offerings actually go to these things. This isn't just to pay my salary and to pay for the lights, but we actually give a good chunk of our overall budget to various partners in our city who are actually bringing and and doing various aspects such as these. So God tells you to imagine the reality of what it'd look like with all of our resources working together in synergy for the impact of the gospel in our city. And then thirdly, do it for yourself, for your joy. You know, if, if you don't give to the church, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not worried about us. I'm not worried about the church. I know God's going to care for his church. He loves the church more than you or I ever could, quite frankly. But what I'm bummed about is I'm bummed for you. You become someone who's sitting on the sidelines, watching what God is doing through others' generosity and through the church, rather than a participant who gets to celebrate and joy through the giving of your time, talent, and treasure. So unleash some joy up on this place through your generosity that flows out of the joy that comes from God. You see, joy, it changes everything. It grips our hearts, it guards our hearts, and it guides 
our hearts such that your life will never be the same. And how many of us, I mean, really want joy like that? I know I do. I mean, are you tired of the fleeting happiness that goes from one moment of transit to another moment of transit to another moment of transit, always moving, never fully present? Well, C.S. Lewis, he has this brilliant quote. He says, Joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. But the great truth also is that we don't have to wait till we get there or till heaven comes to earth till we get to enjoy it. We can embrace joy now as we embrace the life he has for us now. I mean, it's why Jesus came. Jesus tells us this is why he came. If you look at John 15, verse 11, he says, I came so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I mean, Jesus, he purchased our joy with his blood, offering us life and forgiveness. But he also shows us how to party, doesn't he? I mean, what a great Savior we have. What a great Lord. When we party, we many times, we do it as kind of a respite from our dull and humdrum lives. Like, Monday through Friday is through. Oh, finally, an escape. I get to go and party. Not so with Jesus. Jesus' parties don't look like escapes from this world, but they're a window into what the world was designed to be, what it would look like redeemed, what it would look like restored, what it looks like renewed. This is what Jesus' celebrations are calling us to portray. I mean, look at who he invites to these parties. He invites the losers, those who couldn't pay him back, those who have wacky pasts, to show that it wasn't just a celebration for those who had their lives together. It was a party that just screams grace to all all who came. I mean, the Pharisees, they called him a drunkard, not because he got drunk. We nowhere see that in Scripture. The God, our our Lord and Savior, who spoke this world into creation, he never slurred his speech, you know? (laughs) So don't use the Pharisees' accusation as an opportunity to affirm a lifestyle of drunkenness. We never see Jesus actually drunk in Scripture, so don't take that. What we do see is that the Pharisees look at Jesus' life and his overflowing joy and who he hangs out with, and the best logical excuse they can come with is that he's a drunkard. His laughter has such low inhibitions and such great genuine joy that they look at it and say, he has to be drunk. But is, he, is it because he is the Lord of joy and the source of joy, such that it overflows out of him with such extremeness that the only thing that we could compare it to is someone who's drunk and crazy. But he's so experiencing joy and inviting others to joy in respectful and God-honoring ways that his parties call everyone. You see, when Jesus lived, he showed us how to party. When Jesus died, he made it possible for us to come to the party. And when he comes again, when he comes again he's going to invite us to the best party humankind's ever known. But until then, what has he given us? He's given us a meal. He's given us a meal, a time to eat and remember, a time to celebrate and reflect. Many have called this the Eucharist, throughout history, a meal of thanksgiving. We call it communion, a time where we remember what God has done for us in Christ through broken bread as a symbol of his broken body and his shed blood through common juice. You see, when we gather together around the table and we look at those that we're eating next to, we see all the losers, those who need God's grace because we don't have it in ourselves. 
we see all those who are invited to his everlasting party and into his everlasting joy because of what he has done for us on the cross. And let's pray. Our Father, when we come to communion, when we come to the Lord's table, we remember that you offer your joy to us freely if we come to you, as you have come to us. May we receive your grace that flows from Christ freely. May we receive it with joy. And may you continue to build structures in our lives to help us practice the discipline of celebration. Empowered by your Holy Spirit to scream joy to a hurting and broken world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for joy. Thank you that you didn't design us to be these sourpusses, but to be people who are enjoying life and looking forward to the great restoration of all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.